Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm one of your hosts, Yardena Osban, here with my friend and Chavruta, Ann Gordon. Today, we will be discussing Shabbat Yudalit 14. The Gemara here is in the middle of its discussion that it started on the daf before in Yud Gimel about these 18 gezerot, 18 decrees that Beit Hillel and Beit Shammai, the students of Hillel and Shammai, worked out while they were in the upper chamber of Chaninia ben Chizkiah. And most of these decrees center around different halachot, different laws of Tuma and Tara, of purity and impurity. One of the interesting ones that the Gemara records here is that a Sefer Torah, right, one could argue maybe one of our holiest objects, certainly one of our holiest objects today, um, is actually considered to be Tameh. So the Gemara wants to discuss why would a Sefer Torah actually be considered to be Tameh? And interestingly, based on this Gemara, most of the commentators actually say, that all Kitve HaKodesh, all sort of holy written books, actually have the same status as the Sefer Torah. So let's see what the Gemara says here. The Sefer, my Tama Gazrube Rabbanan. So with the Sefer Torah, what is the reason that the sages decreed Tuma, that it is impure? Amarav Mishashrish, I can't even say that. Mishrashe. <laughs> That's a hard one. Okay. Misharshia? So, yeah, Misharshia says. So originally what he explains is, is that what people would do is, is that they would hide or they would, you know, put their truma food, right? The truma, which is what the Kohanim could eat and always has to be eaten in a state of being tahor. And if truma becomes tame in any way, you actually have to burn it. Can't use it in any way. So people would take their truma. They would sort of hide it in small containers. And they sort of make sense. What they would do is, is they would want to hide it next to something else that's also holy, right? So it was the safer Torah is holy and the truma is holy, right? Using the word kadosh. And therefore, they would hide those things together. But what would happen is, is that Chazal saw that eventually... Uh, the Sefer Torah actually started to become ruined. What most commentators explain here is, is that how did it become ruined, right? We know this, that anytime we store food somewhere, what can happen? Animals can get there. And in this case, what would happen is, is that the mice would actually come and they would try to get in to eat the truma and they would also therefore damage and maybe eat the Sefer Torah and damage the Sefer Torah. And therefore, in order to protect the Sefer Torah, Right. Chazal said that it was actually we consider it to be something tummy. What does this practically mean? What they're basically saying is, is that if your hands, which are tahor, would directly touch the scroll of a Torah, your hands then become tummy. Now, I'm not going to get into all of the particulars of what level of Tuma it is. Um, I think that's beyond the scope of our discussion today. But if you think about it, this this decree is really um, pretty out there, right? That we so much wanted to protect the holiness of the Sefer Torah itself that we had to go as far as to say that the Sefer Torah could actually impart Tuma. It in itself is Tame and that it can impart Tuma on somebody's hands. And to think about that, that that is how far Chazal was willing to go in order to protect the sanctity of the Sefer Torah in a way, it seems counterintuitive, but it must have been what they felt was the only way to actually protect it. The Gemara there goes on and says, 
right? So they also want to ask about the hands. Why did they say that hands in themselves are always going to be considered tame? Right? That hands are always busy. Meaning, and I think today, you know, we, uh, in today in the time of coronavirus, where we're recording all of this, and I know it's, you know, very much on our, on our minds, right? So what's the one rule we keep being told? Don't touch your face. There's a lot of like, don't touch things around you. There's a lot of inadvertent touching that we do with our hands that we're not even aware of. So therefore, Chazal basically had to just say, our hands are automatically tummy. We sort of don't, we're not even aware of what our hands are touching or what they're not touching. And the Gemara goes on uh, to quote Brisa, Tana, Apyadayim Havaot Mechamat Sefer Poslot Atatruma, right? Even hands that come into contact with a, with a, with a Torah, right? Um, sorry, post sefer. Uh, they come into contact with a sefer. Postlots at truma, right? They can therefore what? They they disqualify the truma. Mishum de Rabbi Parnach, and this is because of a teaching of Rabbi Parnach. So Rabbi Parnach is actually a second generation Amora who lived in Eretz Yisrael. Um, he seems to have been a student of Rabbi Yochanan. Remember, who's a first generation Amora, and he teaches the following: De Amar Rabbi Parnach, Amar Rabbi Yochanan. If somebody holds a Sefer Torah naked, they will be buried naked, right? So now the question that the Gemara is asking is, do you really think that somebody would be buried naked, right? In other words, you're saying like, how could holding the Sefer Torah naked mean that you should, your punishment would be that you would actually be buried naked? So the Gemara goes on and says, Ella, I'm a Rabbi Zera. A room below mitzvot. No, it's that you're naked without mitzvot. It's not actually that you're buried physically naked, but what it means is is that you right. Remember, not wearing I guess your the shroud that you should be wearing, um, but that you it's like you have no mitzvot on you. You're you're naked of mitzvot um, below mitzvot. So now the gemara says no, we don't like that answer either. What do you mean that this person doesn't have any mitzvot? Okay, they did one thing that was like not so appropriate, but to say they have no mitzvot. Ella, Ema Arum below Oto Mitzvah. Rather, it's saying that for this particular mitzvah, right, this particular mitzvah, that if he touches an uncovered Torah scroll, even if it was for the, the purpose of actually doing a mitzvah, he would not be credited with doing that mitzvah. Why? Because he did that mitzvah inappropriately. So I think here we have in this Gemara sort of a couple of different themes here. One is the idea of taking something that's so beloved to us, like the Sefer Torah, and in order to protect it, we basically put a status on it of Tuma. And I think we actually really learn from this that I think in our minds, we often think that Tame and Tahor, right? Impure and pure are sort of like a bad or good thing, right? Tame, if you're impure, it obviously has a status of being something that's bad or less than desirable. And Tahor, you know, must be more desirable. And I when I read this Gemara, it actually makes me rethink that concept that I think most of us have in our heads because you, they would never put something on the Torah that was bad. I think it's more putting something on it that was practical, right? If you're saying it's Tameh, then you have to behave around it a certain way and you're going to protect the Torah better. You'll protect Truma better. But really, most importantly, it was that you would protect, uh, the, you would protect the, the Torah better. And then I think, you know, what they're saying here about the hands is really just something that's so true of how we, um, you know, of how we sort of go through life. We're really not conscious so often 
now that I'm in a state of like constantly washing my hands nonstop, um, you're really not, you know, we're usually not very conscious of how much we touch during the day. And so therefore, this one really makes a lot of sense that Chazal would want to say, we're just always going to have to consider that hands are always going to be tummy. And then for this last section here, this third section here, you know, basically saying that if somebody were to touch the Torah, you know, just to touch the scroll itself, um, that, you know, um, and really taking it, I think the Gemara is coming out to the end to say, no, we're not talking about a person who literally is naked, but that in a way, if you're not careful with how you treat the Sefer Torah, the same way that you weren't careful with the Sefer Torah, if you decided to store truma with it, and then mice would come and eat it. But if you're not careful with how you touch the Torah itself, right, it's like, even if you were doing it for the purpose of that mitzvah, you would not get credit for that mitzvah. And I think that's a lesson of teaching us that, you know, we have to think about how we go about things, that there are always like sort of more bad ways to go about something, like a, a more respectful way to go about something. And if we're not doing something in a way that's really appropriate, even if our intention is good, we don't really actually get the credit for it. So I just thought this was a really interesting piece of the Gemara here. Um, and, you know, just to really think about that a safer Torah would be considered Tameh is such an interesting thought and a way for Chazal to go about solving what seems to have been a very practical problem um, about the, the Sifrei Torah actually just getting ruined. I, I, so I always found this, um, this example of don't put your food where your books are to be kind of shocking that it needed to be said. Right now, maybe I find it shocking because I'm living generations after this already became a rule, right? As opposed to saying, well, it's precious and it's precious, so let's put it in the same place. Um, I, you know, the idea that the, the right, that the mice would eat the truma and therefore the truma would mess up the svarim, the mice would eat through the, to the svarim, and now the svarim need to be kept separately and we have to call them I mean, we have to render them tummy so that we don't touch anything. I find it shocking. Like, what did you say? Something about it being out there, right? Like, that's exactly, it's just so strange. Except for that, you know, it's one of those cases, I guess, where we say, Kazal really were paying attention to human nature. And the fact that people are idiots, pardon me, you know, comes to bear in this, right? Because because otherwise, just be careful. Don't eat at the table with you when you have books. Don't bring books to the table. I'm sorry, that's what it is. Obviously, we eat at the table. So, you know, I, I find this whole thing kind of both very strange and also very real. Um, the other thing I wanted to add was just that the, the Yadaimas Kanyot came. The first time I learned this, I was in high school, and a, a, one of the guys in my high school also said, you know, kind of sheepishly, you know, because hands touch things, right? And I was like, oh, okay, right? Meaning this idea, it's, it, it's relevant to Nitila Yadaim in the morning, right? That the idea that we we get rid of the tum, the tuma on our hands, it's not just tuma. It's like, what have you been dealing with? And some of it is, you know, simply, it, it may be of a sexual nature. It may be of, as you're describing, you know, the way we're touching our, our face, we're careful not to touch our faces. We're concerned about dirt of all kinds of things, right? The idea that we are, I don't know, talking with our hands and then, and like, as I'm, as I'm talking now, right, I see that I'm talking with my hands. I'm not touching anything, but, but my hands are in the air, which means that in a moment they're going to touch something. Right. So I think that this claim also of in 
in all kinds of different ways, including ways that we might not think of. And, um, and yeah, I mean, I think that that, that the same rendering of, t- of Tuma becomes relevant in ways that we, that are surprising. Right. And, and, and again, I really think here it's that, and there's no judgment in the status of Tuma. Like it's not bad. It's what they had to do. Oh, I don't think it's bad. I think, right. Exactly. Meaning, well, we, we need a primer on Tuma and Tara, which we're not going to do right now. Yeah, right. We'll get to but that. Just we'll the find very, the right dad but, to do it. <laughs> right. But, but I think we can say, and we'll say this, I'm sure repeatedly that impure and pure is not a value judgment. It's a status issue. Is it pure? Is it impure? Done. That's it. Right. Like It's status. It's, it's totally not emotional. It's not emotional. And there's no, like, there's no guilt. Like there's no, there's no value judgment. The Gemara doesn't talk about it in, in a way of you've done something wrong and therefore you're tummy. That's not it. Like you've, you've handled a creepy crawly. Now you're tummy. Like, okay. It's just a technical thing that renders a person from pure, from pure to impure. And then, right, you wait your proper amount of time and you dunk after sunset and you, you're good to go, right? Meaning there's a process that cleanses you. Cleanse is not the right word, right? That purifies you. Um, and, and that's that. Um, yeah, I think that too often, because sometimes the term clean is used in the context of purity. So people come to think of the opposite of purity, which is impure, is also equivalent to, to dirty. And dirty is you know, considered to be a native thing. So, so no, like, just no. No, no. And here it's actually, and, you know, we'll move on after this, but right. It's using too much to protect something, which is just, as I said, I think a very out there concept. Okay. So now let's drop down to the bottom of Yudalad Amabet, where the Gemara picks up this point of the Adayim, right? Meaning this, this decree. And it says as follows, and and it's not really talking about the case of the hands anymore. It's talking about the decree itself and the text of the Gemara, right? The, the Gemara always does this dance between commenting on the text and commenting on the content. It says, hands, that was a decree of the Talmidim of Shammai and Hillel. Shammai v'Hillel Gazor. It was Hillel and Shammai themselves. It's fascinating also just to me. That the that the Gemara talks about Shammai Vihilal when always we talk about Hillel and Shammai. Um, right? So so this is what are you talking? Why are you ascribing this to their students? This was them. These were the the original folks, right? Hillel and Shammai themselves. Ditanya, and we have a Brighta that tells us exactly where this happened. Ditanya. And here are the Zugot, your Dana, that you are now famous, I think, for discussing, and we'll talk about them more. Yossi ben Yoezer, Ish, Sredev, Yossi ben Yochanan, Ish, Yerushalayim, anybody who has learned Perkei Avot will find these names familiar. Um, what did they do? Gazru Tuma al Eretz Ha'amim al Klez Chuchit. Right? So there's two different de- decrees of Tuma, right? Again, this is, a, this is the land of the purity and the, impu- the impure and the pure. Yossi ben Yoezer, and Yossi ben Yochanan decreed that Eretz Ha'amim, which is its own other conversation, is Tame, and Kalei Zichuchit, um, utensils, uh, Kalim is not exactly utensils, it's a technical, it's a kind of utensil, whatever, um, we'll get to that in Kalim, if we please God make it that far, um, made of glass, that they can be Makabal Tuma, Shimon ben Shetach, um, he decreed Tikain Ktubalisha, 
everybody thinks that having a woman having a ketubah is, you know, such a Jewish thing, right? But it actually has an origin, namely with Shimon ben Shetach, who decreed that a woman should receive, going into marriage, should get a ketubah. And it, originally it was, an, it was an item. It wasn't a value of money. It was, and that item was then set aside to be the, her surety, let's say, in the case of divorce. He made that decree. And he decreed about, he made a decree of Tuma for metal kalim, uh, metal utensils. Shamai v'hilal gazru Tuma al hayadaim. And there we go, right? In the, in the bright, it says straight up, Shamai v'hilal, no bait, right? This is not their students, this is them. And they decreed the impurity on the hands. Um, Okay, so then the Gemara goes on, right, to ask exactly about this. Like, well, you know, why why not just assume that it's talking about Hillel and Shammai and their Sayato? It says Sayato, meaning their assistants, their accolades. And and so it goes back to the 18 things that were decreed on that day, right? And it seems that those were only decreed by the Talmudim of Hillel and Shammai and not themselves. And they, Hillel and Shammai, only had disputes on three on three issues, according to this Gemara. Elsewhere, I've seen other numbers, but this Gemara says three. And no more, meaning Hillel and Shammai, for all that we think of them as these great combatants, it was really their Talmidim, their students of their respective approaches that were great combatants. All I wanted to point out here is I think this Brisa is just a good example of a discussion about the Zugot here. We don't have each of the five pairs, so just to remind people quickly, you know, what the, um, what the Zugot were. So before the Tanaim, before the people who wrote the actual um, Mishnah themselves, right, we had these um, five pairs. And it's probably over about a 200-year period, like from 200 BC or 170 BC to about 30 CA. People date this a little bit differently. Um, this takes place during Bayacheni, during the Second Temple, um, and we had these five pairs. The first pair is Yossi ben Yoezer and Yossi ben Yochanan. The last pair is Hillel and Shammai. And Shimon ben Shetach is the middle third pair. He's half of the middle third pair. Um, his counterpart is Yehuda ben Tabai. So it's interesting sort of um, from sort of a history point of view that this um, Brysa that they bring sort of, you know, it's skipping one generation of the Zug. So it's sort of the first Zug, the third Zug, and the fifth Zug. These are different takanot that they made. Um, and um, and I think the other piece to talk about is, so, sorry, and we'll talk more about the Zugot. There's really a section in, in uh, Chagiga where I think we'll get into a full discussion about them. Um, but the second part also about saying was is actually a machlokas of Hillel and Shammai. Um, so, you know, this is one of the, text that we have that sort of supports that Hillel and Shammai themselves did not actually have a lot of disagreements, right? Here, they're actually saying it was only three. There are some texts that say four. It was really their students um, who sort of had more of the Mahlo code, who had more of the, um, who had many more of the disagreements here. Um, and, um, you know, this piece here at the bottom where it says, Viloki blue mean who, right? that the people didn't accept this decree from them and that therefore what happens, and then their students had to come and they issued a decree and then the people accepted it. So I can't tell if that's a positive or a negative. Like what is the Gemara saying here? Is this something that was good 
or something that was bad? Like, are, is it saying almost in a way that the Talmidim made a decree, but it's sort of like further machlokas in a way? I, I don't know. I'm not sure that I totally understood if this was a positive and negative or just totally a neutral position. I don't know. It seems not so positive. Okay. I read it as negative. So I, you know, you, you would agree. That's with what me I'm, that. I mean. Yeah. 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 Which is interesting. And I think that goes along with, and we'll see some other sources about this later on that sort of, you know, Hillel and Shammai as they were as a Zug, as a pair did not really disagree a lot, but there was something that happened with their students where they just had, they created much, much more disagreement. I think that is to be expected. I mean, I wish it weren't, but I, I think we see this all the time that you have people who get along so well, but have a divergent opinion or a divergent approach even more than a divergent opinion. And then it's exacerbated in the next generation and the one after that. And now those people don't even talk to each other, right? I think there's so many areas of the Jewish community at large where this has happened. You know, going back to Hill and Shammai, but not only them. Right. But I think, right. But in my mind, Hill and Shammai are sort of like the quintessential example of that. Of So the more I learn about Hill and Shammai, I like to think of them as like, they actually get along, but it's their Talmudim who somehow missed something about that relationship and, you know, took it, you know, to somewhere different, you know, but. We'll, we'll... Yeah, I think that's, I think that's fair. I think also that's something that happens with distance, right? Meaning, let's say they're the best buds, but then their students don't know each other or not. I mean, I'm sure they knew each other to some extent. We're told about how, you know, there was marriages going on, but between the, I don't know, I guess the sisters or the daughters or whatever. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I think it's a, a disturbing phenomenon, but I think it is commonplace. Yeah. If they are the the progenitors of that or the paradigms, I guess, is a better term. Yeah, I, I accept that, that 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 may well be the case, that they are the single best example of where this goes awry. I wonder, and I don't think that we're going to solve this, but I wonder if there's any example of, you know, divergent opinions on the part of the, you know, the original people and then where the students also get along. Like, I feel that would be preferable and unusual enough. I wonder if we could find such examples where the the love of the one generation carries carries on. on. All right. So something for us to look for as we continue our study of the DAP together. Um, So with that, we'll finish up. That's our DAP for the day. Uh, please find us on all major podcasts. We thank Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. Leave us a comment on Talking Talmud on our Facebook page. And until tomorrow's death, go and learn.